Jeremiah 29, starting at verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of, Jer of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am sending on them sword, famine and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine and pestilence and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire, because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel." 
they have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. To Shemaiah of Nehalan, you shall say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have sent letters in your name to all the people who are in Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah, the son of Messiah the priest, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest, to have charge in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies, to put him in the stocks and neck irons. Now why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who is prophesying to you? For he has sent to us in Babylon, saying, Your exile will be long, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah of Nehalam, because Shemaiah had prophesied to you when I did not send him and has made you trust in a lie, therefore thus says the Lord, behold, I will punish Shemaiah of Nehalam and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among this people and he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. My name is Tim. That's an easier name, isn't it? Uh, and I work with students here. Uh, and let me tell you something about myself. I hate being one of the bad guys. I hate being one of the bad guys. Are you like that? I think most people are like that. Looking around, I realize some of us here enjoy being the controversial ones. But most of us like to be popular. It can be horrible to be the person who's got the controversial opinion. And yet, as Christians, I often find myself on that wrong side of discussions. Everybody is joining a chorus of, everything's going to be okay. Not everything is awesome. They're not singing the Lego song. But they are saying things like, oh, you know, just follow your heart. Anything goes. Everything's fine. And when I stick with the Bible and I see the things that Jesus says, well, sometimes it says controversial things. And I end up being the bad guy. It's still harder when there are those in the church, those who claim the name Christian, who quote the same Bible when they join that chorus of everything's going to be okay, when they pick and choose bits of the Bible just to stay popular. What is going to keep us believing the word of God when we get labeled the bad guy? If we think we're the bad guys, then, well, spare a thought for Jeremiah, son of Anathoth, uh, the prophet who was inspired to write this book that we're spending the next few weeks studying. He is the Old Testament prophet who was famously the bad news guy. He started his ministry over 600 years before Jesus and ran for about 40 years. And his prophecies were filled with predictions of doom, of exile for the nation of Judah. He kept promising that they were going to get attacked and defeated and taken off into exile. He was inevitably unpopular. He was the bad news guy. The prophecy that made him especially unpopular was when he predicted how bad this exile was going to be. Uh, you'll see a handout inside the sheets, and I've printed there for you 25 verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. He wasn't just predicting exile, he was predicting bad exile, 
comprehensive exile, long exile. Then in 598 BC, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, attacked Jerusalem and gave a kind of warning shot. He, took, uh, he came to Jerusalem and took a first wave of exiles back to Babylon. But it wasn't the full exile that Jeremiah had promised. And so everybody thought Jeremiah was wrong. It wasn't all that bad. We'll get over this quickly. Everything's going to be okay. But Jeremiah was still the bad news guy. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That's where we find ourselves when we come to this chapter, Jeremiah 29. A first wave of exiles has gone, but Jeremiah's predictions haven't yet fully been realized. There's a whole bunch of people who want the good news. It wasn't that bad. We'll get over this quickly. Everything's going to be okay. But Jeremiah's word from the Lord is still hanging in the air. This land shall become a ruin and a waste. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. What's going to keep us on the side of the word of God when we get labeled the bad guys? I'm not sure how you would answer that question. I guess we could have answered it from our series in Jude over these last few weeks. But the answer we're going to see in Jeremiah is to turn our attention to God and his word and to realize how much better it is. I've called Jeremiah the bad news guy, but as we're going to see, that's not really true. He is the good news guy. God's word is better. As we were reflecting on the sermon series that we've had as a congregation over the last few years, we realized we just hadn't spent that long enjoying the gospel of God's grace together. And so we've decided to spend the rest of this term reveling in the beauty of the gospel and looking at some of the high points of the Old Testament. Our normal habit at St. Helens is to work through whole books of the Bible. It stops us from skipping bits or um, avoiding ideas that might be unpopular. It's a really good, important way to normally teach the Bible. But sometimes it can be right to focus in on a, a particular idea in a part of the Bible, to take one of our favorite passages, a so-called purple passage, and to slow down and explore it in greater detail. And that's particularly worth doing with sections like this one in Jeremiah. Because as I think we'll see, it's a part of the Bible that is often misunderstood. But it's also one of the high points of the Bible, possibly the high point of the Old Testament. And it's my hope that these chapters will become one of your favorite sections in the Bible, if it's not already. And crucially for us tonight... Uh, this, I think, probably the meatiest of the five sermons we're having in Jeremiah. This chapter helps us to stick with God's words. Not just to accept it through gritted teeth, but to be thrilled to stand like Jeremiah on every promise of God's words. And it starts by telling us that sometimes good news opposes God's word. Sometimes so-called good news opposes God's words. A passage begins with Jeremiah sitting down to write a letter to that first wave of exiles. Verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. For those of you who don't know what a letter is, uh, that is something that people used to write before postal strikes made it pointless. And Jeremiah, he, 
he writes to this first wave of exiles who get taken into Babylon. And he says that God is unhappy with what the prophets in Babylon are saying. Verse 8, just skip forward to verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. We're not told in this chapter exactly what they were saying, but as I've hinted out on the cartoon on the handouts, this first wave of exiles seemed to be saying, we're about to return, we're going home. That's certainly what has been happening over these last few chapters in Jeremiah back in Jerusalem. Just flick over the page and look at chapter 28, verse 2. Uh, some of you I know have read these chapters in preparation, uh, and you'll have seen all the way through these chapters this we are returning idea coming through. Chapter 28, verse 2, a guy called Hananiah says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back this, uh, to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house. In other words, he's saying everything's going to be okay. Jeremiah is wrong. It won't be 70 years. They're going to come back in two. And it seems to be a pretty convincing idea. In fact, they might even have been quoting scripture when they said it. After all, a hundred years before, the prophet Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, had predicted a return. Isaiah 52 says, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Promising that the vessels of the Lord will return to Jerusalem. Isaiah was promising a return from exile. And these good news guys, they sounded just the same. Except that God had said through Jeremiah that they would be in exile for 70 years. And these guys are missing that bit out. And before you think, well, that's only a little change, isn't it? 72, it's not, not that big. Notice how completely that changes the message. When God says it's going to be 70 years before you return... He's telling the exiles that that generation is going to die in Babylon. It's a message of judgment, a, punish for their rebellion, a punishment for their rebellion against him. Most of Jeremiah, up until this point, if you've read it, has been sharing that bad news. But if you change 70 to 2, well, you're saying it's not that big a deal. You'll be back before you know it. It's good news, really. They are opposing God's word. As one scholar puts it, they are declaring war on the word of God. God wants them to know that their exile is a big deal. They're not coming back. It's not going to be two years, but two generations. And so he says, verse 4, 29 verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Do you see the point? Like a father who says to his child, now go to your room and stay up there. You're not coming back, and back down until I tell you. 
Well, so God is saying, don't think you're coming back. You're in trouble and you're going to stay there. It's worth pausing briefly just to deal with a way that I think uh, some Christians have misunderstood this verse. Over recent years, there's been a big movement to take verse 7 as an encouragement for Christians to invest in the city and in secular institutions, that we should seek the welfare of the city. Uh, This book in particular, Every Good Endeavor, by Tim Keller, describes this letter of Jeremiah like this. He says it's been influential in establishing the purpose and tone of our ministry. And so big efforts are poured into trying to redeem the structures of society. We're encouraged to pour ourselves into activity that will reform secular institutions. After all, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, I want to be slow to criticize Tim Keller. He is a great Bible teacher. He is somebody for whom I'm really grateful. I wish that I could preach as well as he did. And I'm sure lots of you wish that I could preach as well as he did. (laughs) But can you see how that understanding of verse 7 misses the context? Verse 7 is not a a statement delivered to all people in all times. It's correcting a particular error. Verse 7 says, In its welfare you will find your welfare, for because, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets deceive you. Seek the welfare of the city because there are people going around saying that you are going to stay, that you're going home, and you're not. It's not commending the city, it's condemning the idea of going home. This is a bad news letter. That's certainly how it was understood at the time. At the end of the chapter, we see how a critic of Jeremiah summarized it. Verse 28, he has sent to us in Babylon saying, your exile will be long. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Do you see his summary? Your exile is going to be long. In other words, this part of Jeremiah's letter is bad news. You are not coming home, it's saying. And that can't apply directly to us. The New Testament encourages us to look forwards to going home. Even when it uses language of exiles to describe us, it doesn't use the word for exiles that you see in Jeremiah. When it describes us as exiles in Hebrews or 1 Peter, it uses a word from the story of Abraham. Like Abraham, we are foreigners with our sights set on heaven. Unlike the exiles here, it describes us as those who are going home. Verse 7 of Jeremiah 29 is a strange verse to apply directly to us as Christians. No, this passage is not about reforming society. It is a warning about false prophets. Verse 8, do not let them deceive you. Do not listen to them. It is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. In other words, sometimes so-called good news opposes God's words. We need to hear that because so often we evaluate news the way the world does. Do you know the way the world evaluates news? So often, it's not a decision on whether it's true, but whether we like it. In fact, we decide whether it's true on the basis of whether we like it. So if I see a news report that says that coffee is good for brain function, ah, that must be true. But if I see something that says coffee is bad for your health, well, that's probably a flawed study. (laughs) And it doesn't matter so much when we're talking about coffee. At least I hope it doesn't matter too much when we're talking about coffee. 
But sometimes the news that we like is opposed to God's word. You'll be back in two years was news that they liked. It sounded like good news. It sounded like the word of God. But it was opposed to God's word. I'm struck by how well this applies to some of the news declared by the House of Bishops recently as they effectively changed the church's teaching on sexuality. To so many, it sounds like good news. It sounds like the word of God, but really it's opposing it. And it's not just the Church of England. We could multiply examples. Earlier this week, I stumbled on a sermon by a famous prosperity gospel preacher who assures his hearers that God will give you success and wealth and influence in this life, that the gospel is all about financial prosperity. But again, he's ignoring bits of scripture, the bits that promise suffering in this life, the bits which tell us that the prosperity God offers is ultimately to be found in the next life. Like the false prophets in Babylon, he's got the timing wrong. And it completely changes the message. It sounds like good news. It sounds like the word of God. But really, it's opposing it. Often we decide whether something's true on the basis of whether we like it. But sometimes the news that we like is opposed to God's word. And Jeremiah's warning is clear. Do not let them deceive you. And do not listen to them. It is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them declares the Lord. And yet he doesn't stop there. As I said at the beginning, Jeremiah is not the bad news guy. He has a better word for us, which is point two on the handout. Listen to God's better word. I said that verse seven is breaking bad news. You're not coming home, and that's true. But there is an element of hope to it, isn't there? In its welfare, you will find your welfare. Jeremiah isn't just breaking bad news. He also gives a note of promise. But the real hope to which God is pointing is beyond Babylon, after exile. And we find it in verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Can you see why people commit this verse to memory and put it on their jewelry? It's a wonderful promise. Wholeness, or as some translations put it, prosperity, a future and a hope. He's promising far more than the false prophets. As I put on the handout, it is the word that offers more. Don't listen to the false prophets, says God, for I know the plans I have for you. Don't listen to them because my word is better. Beyond the judgment that they're facing, God promises that things are going to turn around. Tragically, there's many today who ignore the context of this verse and use it to mean whatever they want. I know the plans I have for you, and then they plug in their own plans, and that's God's plan for me. Even in this moment, when God is saying, don't listen to those who invent my plans, but listen to my better one, even in this moment, people still invent their own plans and put God's name to them. So sometimes I hear students making this all about, you will find success 
in your exams and your dream career. Revision isn't going very well. Open up Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you, plans for wholeness and all the rest of it. Or prosperity gospel preachers in particular like to make this their theme verse and make it all about financial prosperity and career success and influence. But God here is not promising financial prosperity or career success or a fulfilling romantic relationship or whatever else you want to squeeze into that word, wholeness. He himself tells us what he means in verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. You see, restoring fortunes here is not about financial prosperity, but his fatherly presence. Not about a successful career, but a successful return. Not the earthly riches of a bulging bank account but the eternal riches of a relationship with God. Exile was all about the collapse of that relationship. The people of God punished for their rebellion and cast off. Seek the welfare of the city because you're not coming home. But God was promising a day when the relationship would be restored, when he would be found by them. When instead of being scattered and suffering the indignity of having to work in Babylon, they would get to go home, back to Jerusalem. In fact, if we really want to set it in context, we need to see how God's plan for a hope and a future get unpacked in chapters 30 to 33. We read some of it earlier, didn't we, from chapter 31, where God promised a new covenant, that he'd remember their sins no more. Ultimately, this is a promise of the gospel It is the promise of the relationship that Jesus has made possible. Unlike verse 7, when we set verse 11 in context, we see it's really good news. Unlike verse 7, when we set verse 11 in context, we realize it really does apply to us. This isn't a word for a particular generation in exile. This is a word for after exile. This is a word for all of God's people beyond exile. Not a word of judgment that says you're not coming home. This is the word of the gospel, which says you are coming home. But if you want to see that clearly, you're going to need to come back for the rest of this series. And that's not just an incentive to come back. But genuinely, it's as we read the rest of this section, we will see this filled out. And maybe that doesn't particularly excite you. Maybe you're not somebody who is a Christian, or you are a Christian, but you feel a bit dull to this. You'd rather have that bulging bank account and the career success than whatever this is promising. Well, if that's you, please come back and see how amazing these promises are. I have loved getting to explore Jeremiah 30 to 33, and I hope you'll find exactly the same. Please read ahead so that you can get the most out of these chapters as we gather Sunday by Sunday. But even now, I think we can start to appreciate these verses if we just get our heads into the minds of those first readers. Imagine that you were the nation of Judah, thinking about your relationship with God and realizing that it seemed to be over. You've read Jeremiah up until this point, and you've heard it loud and clear. It's been filled with God's anguish over their rebellion and his judgment for their sin. 
is filled with a sort of judgment that actually all of us deserve. And then God makes this amazing promise to them, to us. Verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God's word offers far more than the false prophets do. Far more, not just a return to the land in two years' time, but rather after 70 years, after exile, a future, a hope, a restored relationship, the promise of the gospel. What a tragedy that people settle for the so-called good news of false teachers. Don't settle for the lesser word of mere humans. God's word is far better And not just for what it offers. God's word is the one that comes true. Last point on the handout, and more briefly. God's word is better because it is the word that wins. It is the word that wins. Remember this war between Judah and the word of God? On the one hand, those who say we're about to return. And on the other hand, God's word in Jeremiah 25. The whole land will become a ruin and a waste and serve Babylon for 70 years. That's the war. And the rest of the chapter sees that war playing out. We don't have time to go through all of it, but I've got a cartoon to help us with the last few verses, so let's look at them. Verse 24. We meet this Jewish guy in Babylon called Shemaiah of Nehalam, and he has read Jeremiah's letter, and he is outraged. How dare he? And he ends up writing a letter back to Jerusalem, to the temple authorities there, to get them to tell Jeremiah off. You're the priests, he says. You are supposed to deal with madmen. Verse 27. Now, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah? He has sent to us in Babylon saying, your exile will be long. Why don't you tell him off, he writes. But it turns into a very public falling out. Jeremiah gets shown the letter, and he is told by God to send the letter back. Verse 31, send to all the exiles, saying, thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah of Nehalam, because Shemaiah has prophesied to you when I didn't send him and has made you trust in a lie, therefore thus says the Lord, behold, I will punish Shemaiah of Nephaham and his descendants. You can imagine it a bit like a Twitter spat playing out, can't you? A Jeremiah's first letter gets posted online and everybody is filled with abuse for him, including Shemaiah who picks up his phone and tweets at the priests in Jerusalem, you are supposed to deal with crazy people, why isn't Jeremiah punished? Hashtag disappointed, hashtag leadership fail, hashtag lock him up. And then I imagine Jeremiah's tweet is basically just something like, God is coming for you, mic drop. (laughs) It is this war of words, a very public war of words, but it doesn't take a genius to work out who will win. Indeed, as readers of Jeremiah, there's no question of whose word will win. Even by the time this book is written, Jeremiah's promise of exile has come true. Nebuchadnezzar has attacked Jerusalem again and taken them into exile. Jeremiah was right. God's word won. Indeed, after 70 years, the people of Judah returned to Jerusalem, just as Jeremiah promised. There were people who opposed him, but God's word won. In fact, even then, there was more to come. God's promises are the gift that keep on giving. Though they had returned to the land, their relationship with God wasn't all that it could be. Physically, they'd returned, but spiritually, they were still in exile. There was a partial fulfillment in the 6th century BC when when they arrived back in the land, but a fuller fulfillment to come 500 years later 
when Jesus stepped into the world and he opened up the relationship that was promised and God's word won again. As we're going through this series, we're going to see that God's promises often have a partial fulfillment and then a greater fulfillment in the future. They are the gift that keeps on giving. There was a partial fulfillment when they returned from exile and a greater fulfillment when Jesus came. In fact, even now, there is a greater fulfillment still to come when we go home to God's new creation. God's promises are the gift that keep on giving. And still today, there are those who deny them, those who are opposing God's word. But there is no question of who will win. Just as God's word has always won, so God's word will certainly win. And so as we close, let me ask you, which word are you going to listen to? The one that says what we want to hear, everything's going to be okay, the bishops, the prosperity gospel teachers, the so-called good news that actually opposes God's word. It is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Or will we listen to Jeremiah, to this word, to God's better word, the word that promises a future and a hope, The word that wins. I hate being the bad guy. But if we stand on the promises of God's word, we're not actually being the bad guys. We're being the good guys. The better word guys. And we're on the winning side. Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. And that you have spoken to us such a good word. Thank you for giving us this book of Jeremiah. Thank you for giving us this next month in these precious chapters. And we pray that as we come to your good word, you would give us a great delight, a great hope in the future that you've promised, and a readiness, an eagerness to stand on every promise that you have spoken to us. In Jesus' name, amen.